Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, God's word, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. Let's pray. So there's a good number of human virtues that we prize and are called to possess. And as you know, Scripture has its numerous list of them. There are the fruits of the Spirit, joy, patience, and gentleness. Second Peter summons us to knowledge, prudence, and godliness. Proverbs lays out for us humility, honesty, and the fear of the Lord. In the Beatitudes, Jesus blesses us with meekness, peacemaking, and mercy. Wisdom is more of an overarching virtue. Though, of course, as you know, the top three are faith, hope, and love, the greatest being love. And yet there is one virtue that serves and seasons all the other ones. It's kind of like with cooking. There's an endless supply of tasty ingredients out there, but a single ingredient makes all the others shine brighter, which is salt. The right amount of salt transforms a lackluster biscuit into a marvelous one. Salt makes tomatoes sing, and a pinch of salt can even work its magic on chocolate and caramel. And so also, there is a salty virtue that flavors all the others, which is consistency or fidelity. This is the steadfastness or endurance to remain intact and wholesome, true and sincere. Without consistency, our honesty of today becomes the deception of tomorrow. In the absence of fidelity, love will soon wither into hatred and hostility. If our virtues are not salted with consistency, we become hypocrites, two-faced, flakes, and phonies. Of course, we could all use more fidelity to zing up our virtues, which is exactly the grace and encouragement we get from this slice of the book of Hebrews. So the author of Hebrews just displayed before our hearts that Jesus is our faithful and merciful high priest who is our able helper in times of temptation and hardship. This truth is like a diamond-encrusted crown, beautiful and extraordinary. And as it is with all biblical truth, this should impact us. The truth of Christ is meant to shape our thoughts, uh, hone our behavior, and direct our hearts and lives. And so the author aids us with this very thing. Now, there are many takeaways that can be teased out of this profound fact that Jesus is our high priest. But the author drills down on one in particular. 
And to do so, he addresses us with titles. He first describes our identity and sets forth our status and destiny. To begin with, he or he greets us as holy brothers. Now, this is inclusive, so sacred siblings, hallowed sisters and brothers. But this merges two ideas from the previous paragraph at the end of chapter 2. First, it said Jesus was not ashamed to call us his siblings and also that we are the children given to Christ. That is, in Christ, we are a new family, which not only binds us to Christ as our kin, but to each other. Secondly, Jesus is the sanctifier, and we are the sanctified. Christ makes us holy. And this holiness is not referring to our moral maturity, but it refers to our newly redeemed status as those holy unto God. This holiness means that we are in covenant with God, that we belong to him. And it communicates our sacred status with full access to God. Holiness is a gift of grace imparted to us through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Thus, for you to be holy means you're saved in Christ and that you have the privilege to stand to be, or to be near God as the fountain of living blessings. To address you as holy brethren announces that you are the sanctified children of God in Christ. Additionally, though, he labels us as those who share in a heavenly calling. Now, to be called refers to God summoning and choosing us for a vocation and a destination. This calling includes the Spirit working in our hearts to embrace the gospel and faith, and it indicates that God has transfer, transferred us from the world to be his own. A calling, though, especially includes the idea, idea of a destiny, a goal, an inheritance. If you are called from Florida to California, it means you hit the road, and its finish line is the arrival at the journey's end. Thus, Christ has called us to heaven. The aim of our vocation, the goal of our pilgrimage, is in heaven. And this heavenly destination shapes the manner of our walking here and now. We are summoned to heaven and to be heavenly in the present. Indeed, our holiness aligns with this heavenly calling. For heaven is holy, holiness opens the door to heaven, and holiness characterizes our lives now and forever. In this way, the author then has told us our new identity. We are holy and heavenly. And this being who we are in Christ, now the author encourages us to live it out. Simply put, he's telling us to be who you are in the Lord. Thus, to this end, he exhorts us to consider Jesus. Think upon Jesus with singular devotion. Ponder Jesus with focused attention. And we are to reflect upon Jesus as the apostle and high priest. Now, this is a unique designation. Nowhere else is Jesus referred to as an apostle. Moreover, these two titles are intended as to mingle into one, like ice cream and apple pie, two items on the plate, but eaten in a single bite. Thus, Jesus is our apostolic high priest. 
And by apostolic, this brings out how Jesus was sent by God. He's the official messenger and representative of God to us. Apostolic underscores Jesus' priestly word work towards us. That is, by his sacrifice, Jesus was working towards God for us, but by being sent, Jesus labors in our direction, which means he can be an example for us to follow. The author is putting putting front and center an aspect of Christ's priestly work that he wants us to emulate. Thus, this is Jesus, the apostolic priest of our confession. Now, confession brings in our relationship and responsibility to Jesus in two ways. One, this is our profession of faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as the Son and High Priest. It is believing in our hearts and professing this with our lips. Such is the faith in Christ alone by which we are saved. Yet secondly, confession includes the allegiance and fidelity to hold fast to the truth about Christ. When we confess Christ, we make a loyalty oath to him to be consistently devoted to him in fealty forever. Hence, the next thing mentioned is Christ's own faithfulness. In short, the author tells us, consider Jesus of your loyalty oath how he was faithful. Ponder the fidelity of Christ to whom we professed faithfulness. Therefore, on center stage is put the faithfulness of Jesus, how he was ideally faithful to God who appointed him. Thus, it's only fitting for us to take a moment and meditate on our Lord's faithfulness. Our Lord's heavenly calling was only reached by the path of the cross, which was the most miserable and difficult of all roads. Think about it. After being starved for over a month out in the desert, the devil tempted Jesus to snap his fingers and turn those rocks into juicy double-doubles. But he didn't. The crowds wanted to make Jesus king, and they offered him money and fame. And yet Jesus turned it down. The Pharisees promised our Lord to be relevant, to make a real change in society if he would just take their advice. Even his closest friends were willing to fight for Jesus so that he didn't have to suffer. The Father called our Lord to poverty, hatred, rejection, pain, and the cross. And every step of the way, someone was dangling before Jesus money, fame, power, influence, and respect. One of the deepest ingrained human desires is to be respected, at least a little bit. And few things scare us more than to be shamed. Yet Jesus was appointed to the thorny path of shame and disrespect, and he never stepped off of it. He was faithful to the uttermost. When pain throbbed, he didn't take an Advil. As loneliness drew tight around his neck like a noose, Jesus pressed on. When the crowds cheered for Jesus to get down from the cross, he left the nails in. This is the faithfulness of our Lord and so much more. 
Thus, to, to amplify this fidelity of Jesus, the author now brings up another positive comparison. Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful in God's house. Now, Moses is a well-chosen comparison, for in the synagogue of the day, with which the saints are flirting to return to, no one quite had the hero status as did Moses. Sure, there was a league of heroes in the synagogue. Abraham was the august ancestor of the faith. David was the warrior king. As a wise wizard, Solomon had the master, mastery of secret knowledge. Elijah was known as a wonder worker, and Ezra as the master scribe. Even Judas Maccabee was the holy revolutionary par excellence. But none of these greats stood quite as tall as Moses. For after all, he saw God face to face. He received the law in heaven and published it forever on earth. And when it comes to fidelity, Moses was pretty stellar. Just think of all the manure Moses had to wade through. Pharaoh fought him at every step, and the Israelites were like water torture, constantly dripping upon him. Once, one moment the Israelites liked Moses, and the next they were ready to murder him. They would complain. Moses would provide water or meat, and then they would turn around and bellyache again. And yet Moses never flaked. He consistently and faithfully performed his task for the people. After the golden calf, the Lord was ready to wipe out those meathead Israelites off the face of the earth, and Moses stood in the gap to save them. Any other person would have happily stepped aside. Go ahead, God, and kill them all, and I'll finally be done with these evil brats. But Moses did not. Yes, the faithfulness of Moses is quite impressive. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Now, sure, from the Old Testament, we do know a few missteps of Moses. He wasn't perfect. And yet the author here is focusing on only the positive. Besides, this line about Moses being faithful in God's house comes from Numbers 12, And from God's own lips, if the Lord praises you as faithful, then its quality is heaven heaven certified. Therefore, the ideal faithfulness of Jesus is amplified and concretized by the pristine faithfulness of Moses. Nevertheless, this similarity between Christ and Moses leads to a difference. Both were faithful, but Jesus was worthy of a greater glory than Moses. That is, Christ earned a higher reward by his fidelity than did Moses. And the reason for this higher honor is found within the identity of Jesus. Now, sure, Jesus was perfect and Moses was not. This is true, but this is not where the author goes. Rather, Jesus is counted more worthy just as the builder deserves more honor than the house that he built. Architects deserve more praise than the monuments they design. And this is a rather self-evident truth, even though we don't always act like it. That is, we will marvel at the grand pieces of architecture, 
like the Hagia Sophia or the Guggenheim or the Taj Mahal, and yet few of us could name their architects. Yet clearly the architect and the engineers behind these masterful mansions are the ones who deserve the praise more than the stone and iron that went into them. Either way, this aligns Moses with the building and Jesus with the builder. Both are faithful, but they have different statuses and roles. As he adds, every house has a builder, but the builder of all things is God. The Lord Almighty is the supreme architect and engineer of everything, which then matches Jesus as the builder to God. The higher glory belongs to Jesus, for he was faithful as the God-man, as the builder with God and as God. And he continues to tease out these differences. Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. Though we should ask at this point, what is God's house? What sort of building is in mind here? Well, in the Old Testament, house is quite multivalent. Besides being, besides actually being a, a home of mud and wood, a house could refer to a household or family. It could be used for the tabernacle or temple. House included the people of God and the kingdom of God. And it seems like the author is deliberately playing off of this ambiguity. God's house then is his people, his kingdom, his temple, and his family. And Moses was faithful in all of this house. His fidelity, though, was that of a servant and one who testified to the things spoken in the future. As a servant, Moses was part of the house. He was a piece of the house that was built, but he was not the builder. Moreover, as a witness, Moses foreshadowed Christ to come. Moses' words pointed to Christ. Moses was a type of Christ, but he was not the reality. And types are by nature inferior to the reality. Moses was the ectype to the archetype of Jesus. Therefore, Moses' role was lesser than Christ. As it says, Jesus was faithful over God's house. Note that the stress falls on the preposition Moses was faithful in, Jesus was faithful over. To be in is to be part of the house that was made. But to be over is to be the master, lord, and builder. Moses was a servant in the house. Christ is the lord over the house. Likewise, Jesus was faithful as the son Son sit at the right hand of the Father, the Son rules with the Father, and is the heir of everything. The house actually belongs to the Son. Thus, the faithfulness of the Son has a higher function and role. It accomplishes more. It's more foundational and fundamental. And as he says next, we are the house. Christ is over the house, and we are the house which means Jesus built us. We are the house that Christ built. He's our architect, engineer, and carpenter all in one. Christ designed us. He figured all our computations, and he put us together with his own hand. 
Jesus sanctified us as the temple of God. He adopted us to be part of the heavenly family. And he redeemed us to be part of his kingdom. And he died so that we might be his people. Moses maintained the household. He swept up and kept things tidy. He oversaw the kitchen to keep everyone fed. But Jesus built the whole house and rules over it as the Lord. Thus, Jesus clearly has the higher glory. His faithfulness merited a superior order or honor, and his faithfulness is more determinative for our own faithfulness. So then we are the house, and as the author says next, if we hold fast to the confidence and boasting of our hope. Here the author issues a warning. He exhorts us to hold fast, to be consistent and faithful. He tells us our identity, you are the house of Christ, and then he orders us to remain steadfast as the household of Jesus. Christ was faithful to us, and so we must be to him. And as he speaks of our fidelity, he does so as holding tight to our hope, which here refers to our objective hope. This isn't our feeling of hopefulness, at least not primarily, but it refers to the concrete thing hoped for, that is Christ in heaven. We have a heavenly calling, and so we hope to reach heaven to be with Christ. This is us clinging with allegiance to Jesus, whom we confess, and his destiny that he has for us in glory. Yet two features of our hope are highlighted here. First, he says there is the confidence of our hope. This is the certainty and surety of our hope. We can rely upon our hope without a shadow of doubt because it is true and reliable, because it's Christ himself. Second, our hope, he says, is our boasting. It's our pride. Now, to boast in something is to praise and to laud it. If we brag on something, it's our joy and our delight. Our pride is our source of honor. It is, it is what we find that is gratifying to us and it warms our hearts. Thus our hope imparts to us a confidence and it is what we boast in. It's like us saying, that's my hope. My hope is the best. And this is what we are called to be faithful to. We must hold fast with allegiance to this proud and reliable hope. And when it comes to faithfulness, what we are faithful to makes all the difference. If you have to be faithful to something that's pathetic, weak, and deeply flawed, it's a great deal harder. But to be faithful to what is proud, confident, and sure... This is much easier. And so to hold on to this wonderful hope should be a delight for us, a welcomed privilege and honor. We get to be faithful to the greatest hope of all, the heavenly calling in Christ. Of course, this is hope. It is a future certainty that we do not see in the present. As with Moses and Jesus, the present path before us before we reach our coming hope, is fraught with thorns, serpents, and painful temptations. 
We must be loyal to the future destination amidst a hectic and onerous journey. The current sufferings tempt our faithfulness to give up, to turn aside from the heavenly calling to the immediate pleasures of the world. This is what the saints of this epistle are struggling with. Holding on to their hope feels too hard for them. They're wondering if remaining faithful to Christ is worth it. Maybe there's a better way and easier way. Thus, the author exhorts us and them to fidelity. We must remain loyal to our confession of Jesus. We must stay steadfast in our hope. For our allegiance and faithfulness cannot waver or wander. Our hope must be seasoned with fidelity. And yet this warning to stay faithful is made sweet and its yoke is made light. For we are called to cling to Jesus who was first faithful to us. His fidelity went to the cross to make us his house. The consistency of Christ seals our hope as certain and firm. Indeed, the steadfast of our Savior gives us the confidence and even the pride that he will not fail. Jesus modeled faithfulness for us, and his fidelity imparts to us the grace to be faithful. The consistent steadfastness of Christ grants us everything we need to remain loyal to him. Jesus died for you. He reigns at the right hand for you. Christ's faithful grace and love to you does not fail. It's never inconsistent, but it remains forever the same today and tomorrow. Just as Jesus is the author of our salvation, so he is your power and strength to be faithful to him to the end. So then let us consider Jesus, our apostolic high priest. May we delight and praise him for his fidelity. Born, died, and resurrected, Jesus loved you to the end, and he loves you forever. And with Christ front and center, let us never let go of him. He who is our confidence, Christ who is our boasting, and Christ towards our hope of heaven that will not fail. All praise be to him. Amen. Let's pray.